Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 20th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week we start year number two as a podcast. More about that in just a bit. For the past several weeks, I have been working with a program called Macro Express. And the more I work with Macro Express, the more I wish that I could find a program like it for mowing the lawn, washing dishes, doing the laundry. Okay, so I can't help you with any of those tasks. But if you do have some computer-based tasks that you have to repeat and repeat and repeat, You're going to like Macro Express. It's a $40 program, and you can teach it to perform complex tasks, and it can do those tasks even when you're sleeping. Here's how it works. You tell Macro Express, either by pointing and clicking, or by having the program watch what you do, what you want done. Then you tell Macro Express to do what you told it to do. And unlike a cat... It does exactly what you told it to. Now, here's an example. Let's say I have a business that needs to send eight data files to an FTP site every weekday. To obtain these files, I have to run a report generator program, and each report takes several minutes to complete because I have to answer questions indicating a date range, and I have to wait for the report to finish. This process takes maybe... 30 or 40 minutes a day, time I could spend better doing other things like drinking coffee or reading the month's Playboy. Now, what if I had a way to examine the working directory on my computer, find existing copies of the report files, delete those files if they happen to be there, open the report generator, select the appropriate report, enter today's date and then a date 30 days in the past, choose the appropriate company to run the report for, wait until the report has finished generating the output file, close the report generator, and then transmit the file via FTP. And better yet, what if I could repeat that process seven more times, once for each of the files that I need to submit? And what if I could have it all happen at 1 a.m., when the workstation and the server are both sitting around not doing very much. Well, that's exactly what Macro Express is for. It can do all that and a lot more. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have a screen capture of some of the commands that Macro Express can issue, just a very small subset of them. The program's vocabulary is really quite large. Now, it makes sense to me to break large tasks up into smaller components that can be tested and debugged individually. Now, that's not to suggest that I would ever make a mistake in writing a program, of course. That would never happen. But by creating a series of smaller macros, I can reuse some of those macros in other processes. Submitting a password, for example, or setting some internal variables at the beginning of each macro. Macro Express commands are added when you select them and tell Macro Express to add them to what is essentially a stack. You think of a stack of pancakes. It starts at the top, eats all the way down through the stack. In most cases, you then see a dialog box that asks for a specific bit of information about that command. 
For example, you might want to zero out some variables. You might want to zero out a specific variable. You might want to zero out a range of variables. You might want to zero out all the text variables. Or you might want to just clear all the variables in the program. So as I work through the process of developing a series of macros to do these steps, I created a master macro. It begins by finding and deleting all the work files from the previous day. Initially, I did that on a file-by-file basis instead of deleting the contents of an entire directory because it's a shared machine and other users might drop files into the directory in question. I don't want to delete files that don't belong to me. Later, I rethought that. I created my own directory on the machine, and once I've created my own directory with the owner's permission, I can assume that any file in that directory is my file, and I can do anything with it that I want. So I delete all the files in that directory. Once the process is complete, the process of deleting the files, the macro starts calling each of the other macros that sequentially runs each of the reports. A separate macro is called by each of the report-generating macros to give the application a password. The advantage to this approach is that I need to change only this one file when the password changes, instead of opening and changing the password in eight different macros. I'm trying to save work here. Now, MacroExpress does have an encrypted text option, so I can put the password in in a way that no one can read it. But MacroExpress also has the ability to protect the macros with a password. And if I do that, then inside the macro, I can have the password in plain text. That's actually an advantage, because then when I go back and read it, it's there. I don't have to keep a separate list somewhere of passwords. Because MacroExpress must establish an FTP connection, it needs the name of the server, a username, and a password. The password is encrypted automatically. And one of the nice things about the way MacroExpress handles FTP connections is that it automatically assigns the result of the connection to a variable. By result, I mean, were we successful or not? I want to be able to test that later to see if we transmitted the file properly. And I want the procedure to run Monday through Friday at 1 a.m. when I'm sleeping and the computer isn't. To make that happen, I schedule the master macro to run, and it calls each of the other macros in turn. To ensure that MacroExpress is running and has the right set of macros loaded when I want them to run, I have the Windows Task Scheduler reload MacroExpress at 12.30 a.m. And the nice thing about doing that is once I've done that, the application can run whether anyone is logged on or not. I mentioned the password capability. I don't want someone to be tinkering with my macros when I'm not around, so I set password protection so that only someone who knows the password can open the file for editing, although anyone who can log on to the computer would still be able to run the macro. It's possible to set a password for running the macro, too. I didn't do that simply because the macro is going to be running at 1 a.m. when nobody's going to be around. Nobody would be there to give it the password. This is a really neat application, especially for the grand price of $40. You can't buy that much for $40 these days. And if you need it for a lot of machines in a lot of different places, the price goes down very quickly. As far as cats for MacroExpress, wow, it's got to get five, no question. If you have repetitive tasks that you need to do, 
Macro Express is the way to do it. Here's some news that won't have Apple exactly shaking in its boots, assuming, of course, that Apple actually wears boots, and I'm fairly certain that as a corporation it doesn't wear boots, but after all, that is just a metaphor. Creative has a new tiny Zen stone. It beats Apple's offerings in battery life 10 hours, but that small size, and these things are tiny, translates to small memory, only one gigabyte. And I still have trouble with only and one gigabyte in the same sentence, but that's just me. If you have a lot of Apple-specific AAC files, also known as MP4s, this isn't going to be a good choice for you. You won't be able to play them on the Zen Stone. It plays only MP3s and also Windows Media files, the WMAs. List is $70 in Singapore dollars. Makes U.S. list about $46. You'll find it at most retailers at around $40. Zenstone is available in a bunch of colors, too. Black, white, red, blue, pink, and green. That's six. So you can have one for each day and then take one day off or maybe use one of the colors on two separate days. Like Apple's lowest-cost iPods, the Zenstone has no screen. So you have to remember which order your 500 or so tunes are in or just choose random and let the stone figure out what to play next. Coming in July, Creative is going to offer a docking speaker system, black and white only. So you have your various colors, black, white, red, pink, blue, and green, and a docking station in either black or white. Uh, so they've got this docking station, speakers listing at about $70, again, Singapore dollars. So expect a street price in the U.S. around 40 to 45 Here's the word from Creative, and I quote Creative's PR folks. I like to quote the (laughs) PR folks. You can loan this to a friend just like you would a CD or a mixtape and not have to worry about it. You'll like it so much you'll want another one, so you'll always have one with you. Good idea. Buy them by the dozen. Hand them out to all your friends. And this is a happy birthday to TechBiter Worldwide. One year ago, May 21st. I wrote these words. Until such time, if ever, that Technology Corner returns to the air, we'll give podcasting a try. Joe and I probably won't be able to schedule time during the week to record this show, so for now it'll be just me. I'm learning the procedure for creating a podcast as I write this article, which will give you the information you need to listen. Well, during the past year, Technology Corner changed its name to TechBiter Worldwide, and expanded its viewpoint from central Ohio to the entire planet. Most of the listeners previously listened to the program on WTVN. No surprise there. But there are a fair number of new listeners who are far beyond the range of WTVN's 5,000-watt signal. Radio itself continues to change. And that got me to think a bit about radio. A year ago, it appeared that Technology Corner had come to an end after something like 17 years on the air. Joe Bradley left the Sunday morning program. Clear Channel did what Clear Channel does best. It replaced a live local program with a canned national program. That's good for the bottom line, not so good for the audience. But to quote one of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut, so it goes. Being a broadcast guy... I had always considered podcasts to be inferior. Much as the journalist in me still somewhat considers blogs to be inferior. The past year has proven that I was wrong about podcasts, and I'm beginning to rethink blogs. 
I've talked about the advantages of podcasting, both for you and for me. I can record the program at a time that's convenient for me. In fact, if you're listening to this program on Sunday morning, when it would normally have aired, I'm not even in town. I'm in New York City. You can listen at a time that's convenient to you. You don't have to listen on Sunday morning. And if something interrupts, you can stop the podcast and continue it later. If the topic is one that you're not interested in, you can fast forward through it or turn the whole thing off. And should I happen to say something that's compelling, now I figure there's probably about a 3.7% chance that that's going to happen at least once in the next decade. But if I should happen to say something compelling, you can rewind and listen again. I don't have to drive to the radio station, and with the cost of gasoline being what it is, that's a plus. There are no commercials, no sports, no other program components that serve to reduce an hour's worth of a broadcast program to about 15 to 20 minutes of real content. Instead, you get that 15 to 20 minutes of tech talk in one more or less cohesive lump. This is a tough time to be in radio. It really is. Clear Channel doesn't fire long-time employees. They just fail to renew their contracts. Now, to be fair, it's not just Clear Channel. They just happen to be the biggest ones doing the most harm to the medium. The competition is intense, and it's getting worse. Independent stations such as WWCD and NPR stations such as WOSU and WCBE are making inroads. XM and Sirius have grabbed up a significant chunk of people who listen in their vehicles. Technology makes it easy to obtain podcasts of your favorite programs and listen to them when it's convenient for you. Over-the-air broadcasting, with its never-ending stream of commercials that seem to repeat several times an hour, continues to do just about everything it can to alienate listeners. In the 1960s, they could get away with that. Top 40 WCOL back in those days could play 18 minutes worth of commercials every hour and never play two musical selections in a row because they had a lock on the teen market. They even promoted single spotting to advertisers. That meant there were never two commercials back-to-back. Music, jingle, time and temperature, call letters, commercial. Repeat that 18 times an hour, insert a newscast, and start all over again. Been there, done that, got the chicken man sweatshirt. Now, I'm really not knocking Clear Channel. Companies today see their primary task as taking care of shareholders and staying in business. Customers and employees come a distant third and fourth in that ranking. But let's face it, a company that doesn't stay in business means that nobody who worked for that business has a job. And the customers of that business won't be served at all if it fails. So in finding a way to increase revenue or decrease costs, it makes sense from a business perspective to sacrifice high-paid employees who have been around for 20 years or more and to bring in lower-wage employees. It's apparently not acceptable to ask shareholders to expect a smaller return on investment or to ask the top executives to forego the vacation home in the mountains. Now, that may make it sound like I'm knocking Clear Channel, but to repeat what I said earlier, it's not just Clear Channel that behaves that way. 
and Clear Channel doesn't operate in a vacuum. So the state of radio today isn't very good. As I've told a lot of people, it's a good business to have been a part of back when it was fun. And I'm actually thankful that Clear Channel cut Technology Corner loose. If I'd really stopped to think about it, I probably would have been podcasting at least a year earlier, maybe two. But that doesn't mean I'm bitter. I'm not. Things change. What happens, happens. And I really do like things the way they are now. And I thank you for coming along on the ride. I hope you're having as much fun as I am. And in nerdly news, I seem to have won the lotto again. The crooks who run Internet scams really aren't very bright, but they keep doing it, so somebody must be falling for some of these messages. By my count, a message I happened to encounter this week earns, oh, about a minus 125 points on the believability scale. And it wasn't even a question of having to study the message for more than a few seconds. No studying was needed, just a really quick glance. Message subject, congratulations on your winnings, all caps. Well, at least I give them five points for spelling everything right. That was good. The message was sent from NSW Australian Lotteries to NSW Australian Lotteries. And if you look at the real address, it was australialottery08 at yahoo.com.au. Minus 50 points, chum. You wouldn't have a Yahoo address to announce something like this. And minus 100 points for not putting my address on the two line. Inside the message, attention lottery winner, in all caps, of course. Minus 125 points for not knowing my name. Part of the message said that they wished to congratulate me on the result of the East-West Australia Lottery. And they said that the sweepstakes drawing was held on the 5th of May, 2007. Okay, guys, you get five points for matching the lottery date, more or less, to the mailing date. The mailing date, by the way, was Tuesday, May 8, 2007. And I'll give you that five points, even though I know that in Australia it was May 9th when the message hit the mail stream. But you're assuming I'm stupid and that I don't understand time zones. So at least you put the drawing in fairly close temporal proximity. And here's the best part of the message. It was going along rather nicely, telling me what I'd won, and then it said you have been approved for the star prize of... And that's where it stopped. There was no more message. Now, I'll give them 50-plus points for that. A truncated message might have been intentional, might have been accidental. But I'll tell you, a lot of people would encounter something like that and they would reply to the message to find out what it was they won. This is an advertising trick that dates back to the 1930s. But okay, you get the 50 points. You're copying some of the best of the great ad men when you use a technique like that. But the message still comes out at a minus 125 in believability. This is a classic. If you respond, you're going to be told that there are certain fees that have to be paid, and these may be presented as taxes or handling fees or a bribe. You'll have won some fabulous prize, probably $87 gazillion. To claim the money, all you have to do is forward 50 or or $100 to pay for processing. Now, should you do that, ah, there's going to be some other little problem, some delay. They'll have to 
ask you to help resolve that other problem, and it can be resolved, of course. Just send a little extra cash. Not wanting to waste the 50 or $100 you've already sent, you'll pay more, and they'll ask for more, and you'll send more. And eventually, they'll ask for too much, and you'll stop sending. Did you win? <laughs> no. Just when I think AOL can't do anything dumber than it's already done, it manages to top even itself. AOL says it allows 16-character passwords. When you type in the password, it accepts all 16 characters. Trouble is, only the first eight count. So let's say you have a really cool, really secure password. And maybe that password is arm, rest, snug, on, hat. You run it all together as one word. Arm, rest, snug, on, hat. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's something that can be remembered. It consists of five English words, so it's not as secure as a password like ARMR357SNUG0N Octothorpe, that's the pound sign or the hash, at. Okay, it's 16 characters long, would be considered highly secure. AOL pays attention only to the first eight characters, so the real password turns out to be armrests. Well, that's not very secure. Now it's just one ordinary English word. And the difference between an 8-character password and a 16-character password isn't 8 or even 8 times 8. Assuming upper and lower case characters are treated as different characters, and with real computer systems they are, I presume they are with AOL, you have something like 74 possible characters. I get that from 26 lowercase, 26 uppercase, 10 numbers, and at least 10 other characters. Some characters need to be avoided in passwords, so out of the 32 other characters, I'll figure 10. So that gives you 74 possible characters. If you have an 8-character password, that equates to 72 times 72 times 72 out to a total of 8 times. Increase that to 16 characters, and you have 72 times 72 16 times. You don't have to be a math genius, which is not to say an Einstein, because Einstein's math skills really weren't that well developed, to see the huge difference. And if that's still being a little difficult for you to comprehend, sometimes I have trouble getting my mind around things like this, instead of 72, use the number 2 and do the multiplication. 2 times 2 out to 8 times, 2 times 2 out to 16 times. See how different the numbers are. And speaking of passwords, PC Magazine recently borrowed an article on the 10 most common passwords. What are they? They are password, 123456, QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, first letters on the left hand on the keyboard, ABC123, let me in, monkey, myspace1, password1, link182, and the user's first name. If you use any of those passwords, please leave it alone. Crackers like to have easy access to machines. If they gain easy access to your machine, it'll keep them away from mine. Some of those passwords are defaults that are created when systems are set up. Most are simply the result of people being too lazy to think of a secure password and maybe too unaware of the dangers that they're exposing their computers to. Now, I wondered about Link 182, so I did a little additional research, and it turns out that PC Magazine got it wrong when they copied the original article. The original article was in Wired Magazine, and it was about MySpace passwords, not passwords in general. Bruce Shiner had written the article... And as he wrote, the actual number 5 password 
should have been Blink-182. And as it turns out, Blink-182 is a band. Now you know. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 20th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you are so inclined, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.